You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 16. John Freemuth is a professor of public policy at Boise State University, but he also serves as the Cecil Andrus Endowed Chair of Environment and Public Lands for the Andrus Center for Public Policy. During the Clinton administration, Freemuth served as the chair of the Science Advisory Board for the Bureau of Land Management, so he has a vast depth of knowledge on how science can and should affect public policy. We talked with John Freemuth about the legacy of Cecil Andrus and how science should continue to affect policy in the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. I'm John Freemuth. I'm a professor at Boise State and the Andrus Chair, the Andrus Endowed Chair there, which is, is focused on public lands and the environment. That's my area that I do is public lands. I, I used to be a park ranger a long time ago and so forth and so on. My connection to the, the area is, is as much going there like a lot of people and enjoying it and then working uh, with C. Sanders at the Policy Center and learning about it and his actions as secretary and then how he was able to work with others to get it more permanently protected. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, do, do you have a, a memory, like the first time you had a chance to, to go out to that area? Yeah, I, I mean, in this, probably like most people do, you're, you're, it's kind of a little Grand Canyon experience, right? You're mm-hmm. bopping along, it's flat, and then, oh my, there's the canyon, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's, it's spectacular that way. It's just un, un, unexpected, and the colors are different and so forth. So, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've spent time, I mean, you mentioned that you worked as a park ranger. You spent time in, like, the desert southwest. Yeah, right? I was so. a ranger at Glen Canyon, or to some people, more like, they'd know it as Lake Powell. And so I work everywhere from Lee's Ferry and, uh, up and up through the northern part of the park. I think it's interesting to hear you like yeah. ha- say it's sort of like a Grand Canyon experience, yeah. right? Because like you say the Grand Canyon and there's an image that yeah. immediately pops into people's minds, but yeah. most folks know nothing about the Snake River Canyon. No. Like, like how does it compare? Well, the Grand Canyon is a once- you know, it's the only thing like that really on earth yeah. that looks like that. Now, there are other big canyons, but um, I still think it's a, a bit, to me, it's a little jaw-dropping because it drops right off. And if you're lucky, you're going to see a, birds of, a bird of prey. You see the river down there. You, you can see, you see Swan, Swan Falls, so you start wondering what that's about. Mm-hmm. I think it's spectacular. I think most people would, you know, I don't know if they'd gasp, but they'd be, wow, kind of experience, I think. Mm-hmm. For sure. How did you first meet Cecil Andrus? Well, um, you know, the joke I like to tell is he was my boss three times. When I was a ranger, he was Secretary of Interior. Right. He was the big guy way above. (laughs) And then, of course, I come here at Boise State, and he's running to be governor again. And so I would go to some public events where he'd talk, and like, wow, that's that guy, you know? And then when he left the governorship, I'm at graduation, and he announces that he's opening the Andrus Policy Center at Boise State. Wow, I wonder what that's going to be like. And then, you know, months later, there was a call. Anybody would like to meet with the governor 
former governor then, talk about the policy center and their interests. We'll have a meeting, and about five people came. And um, my take was, get to work with Cecil Andrus? I mean, it's like getting a PhD in the real world. And I was the only one who kind of followed through on it. And so over time, you know, we developed a relationship where we did these conferences on public lands and other things, national forest, wildfire. And we, we just developed a nice working relationship. I kind of feel like I'm the third or fourth wheel as, as a legacy keeper now. There were others who worked with him when he was in office in various places. Chris Carlson, who just passed away, was his a press secretary when he was Secretary of Interior. And then Mark Johnson was his chief of staff during the, the governor return for his third and fourth term. So they're sort of the legacy keepers. But I like to play a little role there, too. Awesome. I guess I wonder, you know, to dig in a little bit to the history Mm -hmm. of the NCA and and how it was established and this process through which it was protected. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I I guess I just wonder, like, how Cecil viewed that. As many, probably some of your listeners will know, certainly, uh, Anders was a true sportsman and an environmentalist at the same time. We used to have a joke that uh, um, if he was grumpy in late October or early November, he still hadn't gotten his elk yet. (laughs) You know, quite a fisherman too. And so his philosophy would be that those lands were for everybody. They ought to be protected for all the reasons we like to enjoy them, whether it be hunting or hiking or whatever. And obviously you're telling the story about how Morley Nelson and others got to him with the importance of that area. And it it would be, I think, a no-brainer to him to consider what to do to protect it, which then, of course, gets into the politics of what a secretary can do. Right, for sure, which like we're definitely interested in. And, yeah. and you know, we've sort of heard some of the stories right. about, you know, what was done and the steps that were taken yeah. to to protect the area. But, you know, I mean, I'm sort of asking more like like from your perspective, mm-hmm, sure. you know, given your policy background. Right. Specifically what happens, you know, in 1980 with the administrative withdrawal. Right. I don't know, like maybe you can talk a little bit about, about like what happened and well, what led up to that, but then also like the significance of that to put that in context. Like, mm-hmm. Was that a really unusual step no. to take at that time? Well, it is a power of the Secretary of Interior under the Federal Land Policy and Management Act that they can do administrative withdrawals for any number of things. Um, people might that are interested in sage grouse might remember that at the end of the Obama administration, Ch- Secretary Jewell did a mineral withdrawal. So there's, that's clearly a power. Now, Andrus, the big story there is he used his powers in Alaska, along with advising President Carter to use the Antiquities Act, to sort of force Congress to settle that issue about what land should go into the park system and, and not and so forth and so on. So he, as secretary, was very aware of that power, and he used it then in 1980 after, you know, talking to people. And I think you've got people like Karen Steenhoff and others who were very cognizant of the science part of this. They really tried to focus the boundaries on science-based boundaries, not just the thing that might come to mind or the boundaries of Yellowstone. Those are not ecosystem boundaries, right? It's a big square. There they did something more in terms of the resource. But a secretarial withdrawal only lasts for, I believe, 20 years. And so towards the end of that time, he started working with people, mainly Congressman Larry LaRocco, to get something through Congress to make it permanent. The Bureau of Land Management has these areas, and this is a long story, 
that are part of what's called the National Landscape Conservation System or National Land System now, which are areas that you might say BLM would protect as their crown jewels, much like we talk about the great national parks as our crown jewels. And it's one of them. And there actually is a law that talks about the landscape system and then the, the certain areas that are in it, like Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, created by the Antiquities Act Proclamation of President Clinton, that becomes part of that system. Secretarial withdrawal doesn't last forever. It's a period of time for various reasons, and after that, then it expires or something has to be done. But, I mean, it was, even though this is, you know, clearly a power that the Secretary of the Interior has, I mean, it, it was controversial at that time. Yeah, it was controversial, I think, you know, it's Idaho politics. Um, there was interest in still trying to develop some of that as farmland. Now, you know, there comes a point, I guess you could say, where a lot of that happened historically, but there was a reason it wasn't farmland yet. In 1980, the cost of irrigating that, you'd have to be pumping the water out of the river. And that a huge electric cost to do that. But yeah, the, the traditional philosophy would be, well, don't do that, cease. We could still farm that. Um, there was military interest there and so forth. There wasn't a lot of mineral worry there. But that's just traditional multiple-use politics. You know, that's we see that today with oil and gas, with whether we should have more wilderness and all of that. That's just an eternal battle out here. Hmm. Andrus was, my impression was always he'd want to get the facts, but he would have no hesitation in doing something like that if he thought it was the right thing to do. But he wouldn't blunder ahead without trying to check his political, you know, situation there and find out who the opponents, who could help, what are the reasons and so forth and so on. I know Dean Bibles, I think you're interviewing him, was very instrumental when he was still with BLM. In fact, he was a speaker at the celebration of the area with LaRocco and so forth that I was lucky enough to moderate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were there. We oh, you were there. To to that. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, and and we did get to interview. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Dean, He's a, isn't he um, separate great? from that? Yeah. I mean, when people say federal federal government bureaucrat, you hold him up as an example of this is what a good one looks like, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and he really he still uh, remembers all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Like you mentioned that Cecil Andrus, you know, w- was working with Larry LaRocco mm-hmm. to make sure yeah. that that area was protected yeah. permanently. Um, on what level, you know, I mean, like, what did that collaboration look like? Well, he'd known LaRocco for a long time. LaRocco had run for the legislature, was an active person in the Democratic Party. And LaRocco, and he's told this story too, and he was on that panel as well, and he, he told one at uh, the Environmental Forum that he thought it was the kind of thing that a brand new congressman could get done. It wasn't like trying to change the world when you're a backbencher. And was able to work eventually across the aisle with both Larry Craig and Jim McClure at that time for their support because it, it needed that sort of thing in a conservative state. And LaRocco, to his credit, got it done. It took a while. They didn't quite get it done the first cycle, so they had to do it again. But they got it done. And, you know, in talking to Congressman LaRocco... I think he felt that it was the right thing to do, and it's the kind of thing somebody like him with not a lot of power at that point could accomplish. The House was still under the control of the Democrats off and on during part of that period, as I remember. Gotcha. I wonder, like, first I'll ask you this, like, did you ever have a chance to meet Morley Nelson? I might have back in the day, but, you know, we get older, our memories go go weird on us. (laughs) Um, Certainly his sons. Yeah. And and certainly uh, Steve Stubner, who wrote the biography of Cool North Wind, uh, it might have been during that time Mm -hmm. because— I remember putting in a good word for Steve to get that thing published. Not that he needed my help, but he was, you know, 
telling people he was doing it. I said, yeah, sure. let's, let's get that done. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you have a sense of like what that relationship was like between Morley Nelson and Cecil Andrus? Oh, I think uh, close. I mean, there's a classic picture of Governor Andrus holding an eagle and, you know, the eagles look at him like this and he's looking back at the eagle. It's like two big eagles staring each other down. And of course, Robert Redford came out and floated the snake with them to learn about it. And then, and then Andrus developed a very good relationship, not just with Nelson, but with Robert Redford. Redford did come out the last time he's ran and, and there was a little fundraiser. You know, I got free tickets to go to the Morrison Center. I remember telling my wife, you want to go see Robert Redford? What? You know, so he, I went with a colleague and, and his wife. And then, of course, we wanted to get him back for an Anders event. And his career, Redford's, really took off again. Um, and getting, of course, into Robert Redford, he's got like 18 people you got to work through. But he really loved Cease and wanted to come back. And then, of course, we lost Cease. Right. Um, so both Nelson and Redford, that whole relationship over Birds of Prey, my understanding primarily just talking to the governor and, and Congressman LaRocco over time about that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, Cecil Andrus had such a long political career mm -hmm. and accomplished a lot. Do you have a sense of like what the significance of this one small accomplishment that he was able to play mm -hmm. a significant role in? Like what did well, that mean to him, you know? I think obviously he has a number of accomplishments. The, the mission of the Andrus Center is environment and public lands, education and leadership. So we do this fantastic women in leadership conference where 900 people come and Andrus's career began in education and fighting for kindergarten. Alaska is probably his greatest environmental legacy, but as a, someone who once he, once President Carter lost, Andrus made it clear, I'm going back to Idaho. I am not becoming a Bellway guy. Um, and I think he would think that that's one of his great Idaho legacies in the environment is birds of prey. Yeah. So I'm curious about your perspective on this and within the context of some of the policy roles that, that you have played in your mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. So you were the science policy advisor. Chair of the BLM Science Advisory Board when yes. such a puppy existed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can just talk a little bit about like what that position yeah. entails, and then like I imagine that that gives you know some interesting context into um, public lands issues in yeah. general. But then like you know the significance of this one particular NCA. We didn't have a lot of issues in the science board with birds of prey, but generally, see the thing about BLM. And I'll tell a little funny story here. I've told it in other forms, but this will get wide-ranging. Is when the two Bundy brothers occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge and then started complaining about BLM, you know, that story went national because, oh, what's this, like the Old West? Cowboys, Indians, guns, hats. And so I got a call from a couple of guys in Philly, right? And it was a talk show. And I don't think it was public radio. It was just a talk show. And they're great. They're, going, they're talking to me, and, and they say... We don't understand out here why these ranchers are so mad at Black Lives Matter. And I said, what are you talking? Wait a minute. You mean BLM? They go, yeah. I said, that out here, that's the Bureau of Land Management. And then they go, who are they? And I said, well, you know, the Park Service has 80 million acres it manages, and BLM has about 250 million acres. And, you know, their response was, holy Tell us about that, you know? And I said, well, you're not supposed to know who they are. They're not back there like the Park Service is because you have Shenandoah or you have national forests back there or wildlife refuges, but no BLM. And so that was a funny side point. But 
Um, BLM doesn't have a huge science component to it. It relies on others. A lot of the sage grouse issue was a lot of the research used by BLM is from USGS, United States Geological Survey, and some of the best sage-grouse ecologists are, were right here in Boise. Steve Knick, the leading guy who wrote a lot of the reports. And so our role was to help BLM figure out how to market its science needs. We wrote a science strategy which suggested what the role of science is and the cliche that a lot of people don't get is science is needed to inform. It's necessary, but it cannot make decisions that are really value decisions. Climate falls into that one. Let us just accept that there is climate change. The issue is what to do about it. And science can't tell us what to do about it. That's you and me. What can we do? How can we get agreement to deal with this? When people always say the science is in, I always say, great, now what? Right? And so that's what we tried to do there. We were supposed to advise BLM on how to think about things. The reason I was chair is I understood the policy bureaucracy. I'm not a real scientist, as I always tell my ecological friends and so forth. But I knew that, so I was chair. But when the administrations changed from Secretary Babbitt and President Clinton to President Bush, uh, the second Bush, obviously, and his administration, we didn't last very long. But I do remember a meeting where then coming in, BLM director kind of met with us out of curse, see, before she abolished just like three weeks later. But um, they were going to try to accelerate oil and gas leasing, kind of what we're doing right now. And I, I remember just talking about, well, if you're going to do that, you have every right to do that. You're in charge now, but you could use us to find out what the pitfalls are so don't you don't find yourself in court all the time by trying to lease in a place you shouldn't. That was our role, advice on how to think about things, on, you know, there are probably places we ought to be doing oil and gas, but there are places maybe we shouldn't, like right next to a national park, for example. Um, what was emerging back then as they were doing coal bed methane leasing and then pumping the gas out of the rocks, the water would go in a holding tank. That holding tank then began to breed West Nile virus, which then would affect sage-grouse because the mosquitoes would bite the sage-grouse and they'd die, um, like we saw squirrels here five, six years ago. We could tell them about that and how to be careful. Our job wasn't to say don't do oil and gas or do it, but to think about how to do it to create less conflict. Everybody should have science advisors um, as long as those scientists understand their role. So the science advisory board was just ceased to exist. Yeah, it was called a FACA committee, which meant we were chartered by the Secretary of Interior and appointed by Secretary Babbitt. And so they don't have permanence. And they shouldn't, really. The next secretary decides, I don't need that. And I think that was wrong. Our terms were going to come out anyway. So it's not like I'm saying, we well, got to keep us because I got a fun thing to do. It's no, there should be new people. And then they could stack it, which is not a good thing. But no, they last as long as they're useful. They shouldn't, you know, otherwise it's just too much bureaucracy bureaucracy if they exist forever. Hmm. At what point did you take over as the director of the Andrus Center? I became senior fellow in the late 1990s, and a good friend sort of recommended me, and that's Rocky Barker, the, the great journalist from the Statesman, now retired environmental journalist. And then what happened is we were raising an Andrus endowment, much like there's a Frank Church endowment after Senator Church. That My colleague Steve Feldstein is the church chair. Well, when we got that raised, I was asked to become the Andrus endowed chair. 
which is now my role, not executive director. We have a we have somebody that, that sort of can run the day to day, and I sort of represent the Andrus legacy by talking about public lands. Not that I'm trying to do what Andrus would do, but just be someone helping people think through those issues. So I started that in the late '90s, and more or less continued the relationship from then on. Gotcha. I guess I'm curious if like either the Birds of Prey NCA, like mm-hmm. specifically, like if there are ever topics related to it that come up, right? Or is, oh, yeah. is the Ender Center, you know? Well, we hosted, we helped sponsor the the anniversary of it. Sure. That my Actually, my former student, Amanda Hoffman, is the manager of the Birds of Prey. She went through our MPA program at Boise State. So yeah, we did stuff like that. I know people would still ask him to weigh in on issues regarding the Birds of Prey the issue of the power lines being located was very controversial and an example of what happens. Both Democrat and Republican administrations get into this when Washington can overrule decisions that local folks are all happy with. So Cease would always play a role if he chose to in articulating something if there was an issue, um, urging people to think things through. So he always paid attention to it. But as he got older, you know, he'd pick and choose things because, you know, I think he felt he'd served the state and the government so well, he'd like to stay involved, but he had grandkids, you know, and he wanted to have, you know, hunt and just do the stuff that he liked to do too. But he would, if it mattered a lot, he would have something to say about birds of prey. Certainly. Yeah. You brought up the transmission line issue, yeah, which is like, seems like the most contentious thing that has happened in the NCA in a while. Did Cecil have a, like any thoughts or an opinion on that? They, Ask him to say things and he really didn't get engaged that I'm aware of. I mean, that's not that old of an issue. And by then, you know, Cease was 82, 83 years old. He may have made some phone calls I'm unaware of. But I think, you know, and I I can't speak for him, but I'm sure his position would be, you know, if you guys have all worked that out at the local level between BLM and the folks that live around there and the other interests, um, ranchers, others, property owners, uh, Washington should be very careful at intervening and blowing up that consensus. You know, he was very much a consensus guy, if he could be. So that would be probably what he would have done, but I'm unaware of how much he would he actually did stuff towards the end. Mm-hmm. How about you? Like, did you have an opinion or like as a representative of the Andrus Center? Like, how do you feel I about had the way things op- played out? I was talked to occasionally by the media more as a public policy guy. And yeah, they'll hook the Andrus Center onto it. But I always make it clear that I don't represent what Cecil Andrus, that there's one Cecil Andrus and I don't speak for him. Mm-hmm nor should anybody else. Um, (laughs) But I said, yeah, this is a difficulty when you get decisions intervened with in D.C. That creates a lot of distrust. Local BLM can feel that they were submarined by national BLM. Other players get involved. There's political dealings that go on. And I would say that that can be unfortunate. It's much like we've seen with sage grouse lately, that you get people that are willing to hold hands and sit down and deal with something, then something happens that kind of intervenes, and they feel that what they'd worked out has been blown up then you get more distrust, mm-hmm. you know. But to the other side of that is that's politics, and that's what happens in Washington. Mm-hmm. It happened at the end of the Obama administration on Sage Grouse, and it's happening right now again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the great question of what is the proper role of local interests and state interests in federal lands. And 
I work a lot with the Western governors too on right now on invasives. And we need to, and I don't have an answer here, but have some sort of collaborative federalism where we understand those are federal lands with national interests. But sometimes the agencies, when they refer to governors as stakeholders, I mean, there is a constitution of the United States that does give recognition to states as entities. They're not just stakeholders. And so that creates a lot of tension. Now, you know, we're getting in the really big picture stuff. I don't think the states can manage the federal lands. I don't think they have the money to do it, but they need a voice where they feel that their voice and tribes too, I don't want to de-emphasize that at all, need more of a voice than they feel they sometimes get in these deliberations. And it's a tricky question, you know. Um, states could really screw up the federal lands, g- given some of the politics in some states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the specific outcome with Gateway West was that, because like in a certain sense, it was kind of a compromise, right? You know, it's, it was. Um, I wonder if the way it actually played out, was that surprising to you? No, because I think at the end, Mike Simpson intervened and got something done. I think that some people fell in BLM that it, it sort of, uh, the way some of the land was traded and so forth, uh, some of the land, it was less valuable that was included and some of the good stuff maybe wasn't. But Mike Simpson's, you don't have to agree with what he does sometimes, but he tries to solve problems, you know, rather than make it a big forum for just uh, being on a soapbox, he did something. Some people wish he hadn't done it that way. Other people think he solved the problem and there's still some uncertainty in there about a foundation and so forth and so on. It's too bad, I think, that the original local-based decision couldn't have been sustained. I think most people were happy with it at this level. Some of the national environmental groups got in the middle and they developed a principle, if I remember right, that, well, you know, you can never compromise one of these areas even though the law suggests that you could have mitigating actions, right? And so they were sort of being purist with a principle that once you open one of these, and it's like, well, you know, it's not that simple because that area has had been heavily used anyway, was not pristine. And there were all kinds of opportunities to mitigate if you had to do something by protecting land elsewhere in the area that was important to keep the integrity of. So mm-hmm. it gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, you know, this was something that, that came up at least, I mean, very briefly in the panel discussion that the Andrew Center hosted earlier this year. And, you know, like the the criticism that Dean Bibles we were talking about sort of expressed was kind of like, it was sort of like a different type of like purist attitude, I feel like, where he, you know, he was very adamant that the boundaries for this national conservation area were set up based upon science. Mm-hmm. And that's really unique. Yeah. And this kind of takes that away. Yeah. It's like the boundaries are now different. And it's like you've allowed politics to take away this sort of pure science based decision to protect, to keep the boundary in this. Well, yeah. And that gets us into really philosophical stuff. There's politics and then there's politics. (laughs) Sometimes politics is the art of the possible, but sometimes it's the art of intervention that screws everything up. Uh, I'm not saying that's what Mike Simpson did, but probably the more appropriate solution using Dean Bible's philosophy is let's use science to decide where to put those lines and make sure we keep the integrity of the area rather than just this is where it's going. And as someone who helped, you know, be that involved in the thing for a long time, I don't blame him to have that position at all. Like you feel like you've done all that work and there were compromises there anyway that uh, why don't you just stay with that? 
you know, rather than intervene with these other decisions that are kind of weakening some of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, the fact that the boundary, and you brought this up earlier, the fact that the, the boundary of this particular NCA was established based on scientific research. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wonder if you have sort of like very specific background to sort of the intersection of like science and policy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, how unique is that? Like, Pretty unique. If you look at the history of establishing areas more for protection, right, wilderness boundaries are more or less political compromises, you know, because of cherry-stemmed roads, because of mineral rights. The first national park established for biological reasons primarily was Everglades, if you look at the boundaries of Yellowstone, that is not an ecosystem boundary. We all know the critters, like the bears, don't go, whoops, there's the boundary, better stay on this side of it. So most of those things are not purely established by science. They can be informed by science, and boundaries can be changed because of scientific information, but the end result is a mix. It's a stew of science and politics because there are interests that are affected. Now, some of those interests are incredibly self-centered and trivial. You know, it's some one person with an interest. But there are, you know, that's our public lands. We use them for all sorts of things. And so there's going to be politics around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me, right, because, you know, everybody talks about the role that Morley Nelson played mm -hmm. in, in establishing yes, protection yes. for this area. And, like, as we dig into the history, it's like we realize that one of the most substantial roles he played was kind of like in the back, like pulling the sort of strings in the background, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, the original level of protection that was, you know, for the, the Snake River Canyon when it was, like, just the canyon, that was done based on raptor research. Mm -hmm. But, like... Morley was the one that was like sort of in the background saying like, hey, you should do research on this species or here's a project, raptors, like we need, yeah, you know, yeah, but it was sort yeah. of like with the understanding of like, we need this research yeah. in order to establish protection, yep. um, which is an interesting approach given what you just said about the history of you know, protecting areas based yeah. on scientific research. Like it doesn't happen that often, but it seems like Morley was like, we can do this. If, if I have the research, I can, you know, make the argument that it should be protected. He is, again, that's an example of somebody that understands both sides of things. He can point scientists in places they need to go because he's been out there enough. He's as much a science advocate as he is a scientist. But we've had people like that in our history before. Some of our national parks were created by an advocate who both knew the area and went out and, as you say, nobody could see your hands, but pull strings. Grocky Mountain National Park, these advocates that fight hard for something to be protected, and they know the resource, whether they be a citizen scientist or a more traditional scientist that can influence other activists, interest groups, and members of Congress. And I never knew Morley Nelson to that level, but you've described what he was. A lot of people have said he was. And so you kind of need that. I mean, scientists can be horribly inarticulate about how to make something happen, but they can also be very charismatic about the wonder of a resource. And if they can do that, they can become effective advocates. And of course, it still comes down to this is what the boundary ought to be, science says, but can the politicians get to the point of drawing boundaries that everybody can live with? Because the danger would be, well, this has to be the boundary, 
well, we can't do that. Well, then I'm opposed. Well, okay, you're going to get nothing if you're opposed. Can you live with a compromise? And none of that's perfect, right? It's a messy deal. Yeah, for sure. You know, by the time we reach the point where the area, you know, this bill mm -hmm. um, is created and, and passed, um, you know, it's written into law that one of the management priorities for this new national conservation area is the protection of birds of prey, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it makes me think when you were talking about the role of the Science Advisory Board mm -hmm. to, to the BLM and, you know, talking about how, like, it's typically like other partners that do the science and that informs the management mm -hmm. of the BLM. You know, one of the things that we've been exploring as a part of this project, but also like as, you know, representatives of this friends group, the mm -hmm. Birds of Prey Partnership, mm -hmm. is importance of ongoing research on the raptor population. Yes. And as the years have gone by, you know, since this area was protected, like a lot of the funding for that ongoing research has disappeared. Mm -hmm. This is sort of like a policy question for yeah. you. Like, yeah, yeah. How can you, it's written into law that you have to manage this area based on protecting raptors. Yes. And it, but if you don't have data to do that, how can the BLM manage they to can't. protect raptors? They can't. I mean, the two things that happen there, you need an advocacy group, because BLM cannot argue for this, but you, if you have a friends of, for example, they can make the case that, you know, they need more money here to be mm -hmm. able to do this. But at the end of the day, you know, a law says what needs to be done, but the second stage of that is appropriation. If there's no money appropriated by Congress to do something, then they can't do it unless they're stealing from other accounts to try to do things. That's what a lot of people understand is if, you know, you create an area, I'll use a hypothetical, Congress creates a new national park and provides no funding to the management of the park, then what's supposed to happen? Not much, right? And that's what most people don't understand. The law may say, go out and manage the raptors. But if BLM, and it's true, you know, we're in a bad area era right now where you have an administration that doesn't value funding certain things like science and public land management. That's their choice. But if there's no money for it, then you're not going to have research unless a university can come in or they can cobble together money to fund another person to do it like USGS or they have their own money. Um, one of the tricky moves one can make in politics is if you defund the gathering of information, then there is no information to make a decision. Then it's pure politics. Well, we don't know anything, so I guess we can't do anything. Or, well, there's no evidence that the raptors are in trouble. Well, that's because you had no money to fund any research to find out whether they were in trouble. It's that kind of politics. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. The tough decisions are still political, but without information to make a not a pure political decision, but an informed one, then what do we have left? We have nothing except pure politics. Mm -hmm. So people always need to pay attention. The first thing that gets cut if you're talking about environmental questions is monitoring. That tells us whether there's change and if that change is good or bad or too much or whatever. But if there's no money for monitoring, then we don't know. We have, you and I might go out there and go, God, that looks different than it used to. That glacier's receded, you know, but that's us. That's our impression. That's not going to change a decision maker, but more scientific research might. Mm -hmm. It strikes me as like, you know, you write something like that into law, yeah, yeah. you know, but people are yeah. still able to make the political decision to like take away the money that allows 
that to happen. Like, isn't that, I mean, it, it's surprising to me that nobody has like filed a lawsuit against the BLM. Well, the, like, the trick specifically is Specifically because of this, you know? The trick there though is I'm not sure if they could win a lawsuit if there's no money for it. In other words, there would have to be some mechanism to fund the research. And I'm not clear how a lawsuit could necessarily force that because BLM has all kinds of priorities to spend money on nationally. What can happen, and this is a story about a different issue, is one of the things I wrote a book about was the protection of what are called federal class one areas, which is a fancy term for wilderness and national parks established before a certain date from visibility impairment, air pollution. EPA was supposed to do all these, develop these regulations on how to do it. Well, they didn't because they were overwhelmed. EPA is always overwhelmed. It's been given so many damn things to do by Congress. It's ridiculous. And so environmental groups sued and a judge said, EPA, you're required by Congress to develop regulations on how to protect visibility. But those are just the regulations. The actual protection of visibility took 20 years or more of research, primarily by the National Park Service and EPA, to do that. And then when the Park Service is doing that research, they've still got to balance research in all their other parks, wildlife, visitor behavior. That's the problem. And could a judge force BLM to spend more money on that than something else is not having money spent on it unless Congress turned around and appropriated more money to BLM to do that? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's like it's like a loophole. Oh, yeah. In like our whole like system of government. Yes. You can just like write something into law and then be like, oh, well, there's no money for it. So we don't actually have to do that thing that was written into law. No, they, the second step is the appropriators. <laughs> yeah have to appropriate money for something. Now, BLM, if it wanted to make that much of a priority in Birds of Prey, through the national office, could figure out a way to reallocate resources in BLM to get more money to the Birds of Prey to do more research. They have that discretion within their budgets to do that. A lot of that they are given a pot of money. And there are some things they have to spend it on, but within that is all kinds of discretionary authority about what to spend it on and where to send the money. All right, right now they're spending, the attention seems to be, let's spend more money on rushing through oil and gas leases, and we're less concerned about resource protection. So they make they reallocate money that way. Hmm. It's probably like what they do here in the radio station. I mean, you have to make priority decisions about limited resources. For sure, Yeah. For sure. I wonder, you know, thinking into the future with this particular patch of public land in Mm -hmm. mind, the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, what concerns do you have? I should add, too, that the military does have research money they can use, too, with a training area out there. Yeah, they they have learned that this is a priority, too. Uh, even in the military. They understand it creates a lot of goodwill if they're they're out there doing that kind of stuff too. Well, that people still appreciate and love the area. There is nothing cooler to me as you see how you can do that besides going out there. I've seen it happen at the 25th anniversary and I've seen it elsewhere. They bring those birds into classes and those kids' eyes get so... <gasps> You know, mm-hmm. and then the kids want to know more, mm-hmm. you know, and then they go out there or a visitor goes out there and goes, oh, my God, look at this. I mean, it's that may be, you know, and I don't want to overstate it, but a good friend of mine used to be the director of the National Park Service, John Jarvis. One of his big areas of concern is we have to get the kids out there. You know, you can't just 
look at Yellowstone online, though they're fabulous pictures, and it's getting people to experience those areas that creates the constituency to protect them in the future. That's what has to happen. Now, yeah, that can be a downside. There could be too many people out there at once and the birds are freaking out. And you know what I mean? But those become the people that fight hard to make sure it's continued. If, if we lose interest in that, that's the biggest danger. Well, see, nobody's going out there. We don't need to protect that. They don't, they don't care. Mm -hmm. That would be my concern. That's a good one. That's a yeah. super important point. Is there anything else that like that you think is important to mention in connection with the NCA that we haven't discussed yet? No, I mean it is interesting to see that in Idaho history there have been things like that. Um it was Cease's understanding of the use of the Antiquities Act that forced the Boulder White Clouds to finally be resolved as wilderness. Um he created dual tracks there where it gave Mike Simpson the, uh, some more momentum to get his wilderness passed because people were uncertain about a national monument and what it meant. Andrus understood that becomes a good tool to force dialogue like they did in Alaska. The minute Congress acted and created what is the Alaska system of lands now, they rescinded all the monument proclamations. And so we have had other people do things like that in Idaho, get something protected, Simpson and the Boulder White Clouds. Um, Jim McClure, though a conservative, would figure out ways to do things, and certainly renaming the uh, Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness is an example of at least honoring a, a colleague. And so it's that use of effective tools to get things done by our, our leaders, because the opposite argument would be, well, but the secretary shouldn't do that. Congress ought to protect it. Well, Congress can't get tell us what day it is anymore. They're a pathetic train wreck to a lot of Americans. They have become so hyper-partisanized, they can't do anything. And so why not have an effective leader that you'd want them to ground truth it before they just did something? And that's a power Congress actually gave the president to do that. And it becomes a nice check and balance on our system. If Congress won't act and a lot of people want something done, well, maybe the president should do it or a secretary. Yeah, ideally, it'd be nice for Congress to do something like that. But we got an interesting road ahead now with one House Democrat and one House Republican. But I don't know what that'll mean till we see it happen. For sure. And, you know, Cecil Andrus was a Democrat in a very Republican state mm -hmm. and more than, you know, most other politicians around, he had to find ways to be bipartisan and to work with folks that he didn't necessarily agree well, with. Well, th that's a lot of it, but there's another critter out there. We call them Western Democrats. And maybe we want to think as, well, historically, it would include the coast, legendary uh, uh, senators like Scoop Jackson of, of Washington. Um, but the Western Democrats are moderate. You know, they understand multiple use. Uh, they understand the needs of sportsmen. They're physically responsible with budgets. And so Cease is an example of others. Governor Bullock right now in Montana thinking of running for president. Governor Inslee of Washington thinking about running. And there's a lot of people that might say something like this. It'd be nice if the Democratic Party could elect and have somebody become a nominee that's from the West, a Western Democrat. You know, we saw Frank Church catch on too late when Carter ran. And Carter, of course, picked Andrus as Secretary of Interior. And uh, Bill Clinton picked Bruce Babbitt. And Barack Obama picked Ken Salazar and then Sally Jewell. But it would create a different way to look at this because Democrats aren't Democrats. I mean, it depends on what part of the country you're from. And the Western Democrat is much more like a centrist 
that, that, yeah, can work with Republicans because they're not perceived as crazy too liberal because they can't be. They'd never get elected, right? And so it'd be interesting to see if somebody like that catches on in this next two-year circus that we're all going to be watching now. Did Cecil Andrus, like, fit that mold of, as you say, like, the Western Democrat? Oh, yes. He was a legendary Western Democrat, I mean, along but with did others. he, like, you know, was there anything about him that made him stand out from some of the other examples of, like, current politicians that you mentioned? You know, I don't, I mean, yeah, I think so, but I'm so biased because I got close to him. But we did one Andrus conference where he brought in former governors that he'd worked with, but they were both Republican and Democrat. Uh, Bangader from Utah, as I remember, Sullivan from Nevada. And they just talked about how as because the Republican Party has changed and it's become much more conservative. But those Republicans he worked with, you know, were sort of on the other side of the middle, but they again wanted to get stuff done. They weren't ideologically right wing. And so it was an era of, there was a Western Republican back then too that was much more in the middle than we see now in some cases um, with some Republican governors that are elected in the West. Certainly not all of them though. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a point that came up again during that panel discussion hosted by the Anders Center was the fact that Morley Nelson was Republican yeah. and established this really amazing relationship with Cecil Andrus. Um, that was <laughs> just kind of a random side note, but like we were up at the archives of Falconry mm -hmm. and they have like a Morley Nelson display in mm -hmm. there. Um, and one of the things they have on display there is a photograph of him with or no, I don't think he's in the photo, but it's like a photograph for former Republican presidents. It was like Gerald Ford, Ronald oh, Reagan, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bush, and Nixon. And yeah. it was like each of them had signed the photo and like sent it to Morley as like, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a thank you for all of the amazing like conservation work that you've done. That I think highlights like oh, yeah. the change that you talked about in the Republican Party. Oh, you Party, know, right? it's as much about the relationships these people forge and they learn how to work together, even if they're going to be on opposite sides of the issue. Two quick stories. If you watch the ceremony for George Herbert Walker Bush, 41, yesterday, one of the keynote speakers was Alan Simpson. Alan Simpson and Andrus were close friends. I sat at lunch with them at an Andrus conference and they just teased each other to death. You ball-headed old coyote hunter. And Governor Batt and Governor Andrus were close friends. I was in Andrus's office once. He was no longer governor. We're talking. He goes, you know what I'm doing? I'm writing a check for uh, Ted Stevens, the legendary senator from Alaska, was senator for 40, 50 years almost. Why am I doing that? Because when we did the Alaska bill, we fought like cats and dogs, but he kept his word. And this is my way of acknowledging that, did a little contribution to a Republican's senatorial campaign because they transcended partisanship when they had to. By, you know, they'd posture, they'd dig at each other, but behind it, they were figuring out a way to get something done for their constituents and everything like that. And so... I think that's what's lamented today. Those relationships do exist, but they're less obvious than they used to be. One of the reasons is they don't stay in Washington like they used to. So why we're able to get Bethine Church to get Al Gore out here, whether you like Al Gore or not, because the churches and the Gores grew up together. Now, granted, they're all Democrats, but you see that across the aisle where the kids play together. You know, the families, they develop personal relationships, which it makes it less likely you're going to stab some guy in the back. You know, you might, mm -hmm. we're, look, we're just going to disagree here, mm -hmm. but it's not personal. Mm -hmm. Now it's personal, it seems like, to a lot of us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
how concerned are you about efforts to privatize public lands? I don't think that'll ever happen simply because that's what unites a lot of different public land users who may fight over, well, I don't want ORVs here, or I don't want this or that. And we see an example of it with these two brothers from Texas who are locking up roads. Now, those weren't public lands. Those were private lands that were timber lands that the company sold to these guys which the folks up in the McCall area all used, I mean, those, the timber industry, they kept the roads open unless they were doing a little logging. And these guys come in, poop, gates. And so it's pretty easy to argue that if you privatize the federal lands, then that's going to happen a lot more. And of course, you then take the next step. If you transfer the federal lands to the states to manage, and if there's one thing I'd harp on for all the listeners here is, Anybody who ever says, well, those lands should be given back to the states is wrong. Idaho have never had the federal lands. That was a territory first. And then land was granted to Idaho and the rest stayed under federal management. Okay. But if the state, and they could be transferred, that's totally constitutionally legal to the state. The state can't afford to manage them like the federal government. So what are they going to do? They're going to sell off some of it. Well, bingo, the minute that starts... You're going to see locked gates, most people think. So that's why I don't think that's going to happen. People are afraid of privatization. And the state has great professionals. Don't misunderstand me in the Department of Lands and so forth. But they also manage lands for different purposes. And they don't have the money. Mike Simpson, to his credit, once had a Congressional Research Service study done of the cost of managing federal lands in Idaho. It was a high of $300 million a year. Where on earth is the state going to get that kind of money to do that, even though they could probably do it a bit cheaper because they just there's less sunk costs with Washington? They're not, you know. And I think Governor Otter, to his credit, and others who were sort of big on that, realized we can't do this, but what we'd like is more voice back to the collaborative federalism again. Um, but people need to be vigilant because like cicadas – this stuff comes back about every 15 years. So you can count on somebody getting on their horse again and going, the states can do a better job or we ought to let the market do this. It will happen again. Mm -hmm. it, I can just show you the times it's happened in American history. Mm -hmm. It never goes away. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like how that came full circle. And, and I like the point you made about that there is kind of a compromise yeah. there where states can have a say in how that land is managed without directly yeah. transferring the responsibility. Yeah, and, and they deserve, I mean, they the feds have can make mistakes at times. If you get the wrong managers with the wrong people skills, you can create a lot of distrust. Former state BLM state director is a guy named Tim Murphy. Tim worked hard with Governor Otter to have a joint plan on how to manage sage-grouse in the south of Idaho. We're a big sage-grouse state, and our threats tend to be fire and roads, not mining, because that's not a big issue, or oil and gas is not a big issue. And so Tim was pretty well respected by the state. Um, but you get the wrong person in there, it creates more tension. And it's learning the art of figuring out how to give states more voice where other people feel that the state isn't dominating the conversation and the state feels like its concerns have been listened to. And that that is kind of one issue at a time stuff. And it takes the right people to be doing those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I had one more question that Congress granted the president the right to protect public land through the Antiquities yes. Act. And so the president can establish national monuments. Um, and so we, we've had this recent controversy yeah. with the Antiquities Act being used to shrink or change mm -hmm. or alter the boundaries 
uh, of national monuments. Mm -hmm. and that's the first time, to my knowledge, that Antiquity has, has been used that way. And, and do you think that act, is that an appropriate use of that act? Well, or is it that's a profound question. Now, historically, actually, there was one other time where a president did reduce the size of a monument somewhat significantly. It was Olympic, which was then called Olympus National Monument. But what Congress did is then say, okay, we'll make it a national park and make it bigger again. So then what happened is in 1976, Congress passed the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. And there's really weird language in a House report that's never been tested that seems to imply that only Congress can adjust the boundaries of a national monument. But it, that's not law. It's in a House report. But since FLIPMA, no president's done anything. And, and the one, uh, most of the other ones that were done were like 500 acres. Like, whoops, we screwed that boundary up kind of stuff. So there are lawsuits now, and a lot of legal minds have weighed in on this. There's no definitive answer to the question of whether a president can do this. You would think that they need to have a pretty clear set of definitive reasons that are science-based on why they're changing the monument size, because to make a monument, you have to, in your proclamation, say why you're doing it, what resources are there, and thus the boundaries are this way. So I'm not clear whether this administration has made those arguments clear in a case. A lot of that was done originally was very ham-handed. They were going to look at craters, and then Mike Simpson said, Norris, said, get your hands off craters. And by the way, as I read a little email to somebody in Interior, by the way, you know, Mike Simpson already made part of craters a preserve because of hunting issues in national parks. So Congress has already done something, so you can't touch that. Mr. President. And whoops, you know, so they didn't do anything on that one. I don't know. I'm not a legal scholar, though I've written on this. Whether the Supreme Court, when it gets this, is going to want to deal with this, and because here's one thing. They might say this is a political question, not, not a legal question, because what's to stop, okay, the next president, let's say it's a, uh-oh, it's a Democrat, and the House and Senate, Trump has so screwed up, listeners, that's not a partisan comment, I'm doing a political scenario here, that the Republicans lose all kinds of seats. So you've got a strong Democratic majority, and President Bullock decides, I really liked the Bears Ears the way they were. I'm reestablishing those boundaries. Do we want to open up that can of worms where you go whoop, 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 back and forth? But that's just my speculation. I have no legal way to get there, but I would think the courts might be looking at this going, this is a can of worms. Clearly, public sentiment is to leave them alone, that the people who have commented on it have said that. I mean, they asked for public comment, and the public said, what the hell are you doing? Half, half a million comments were submitted. And I've, that's the area I was partly a park ranger, so I know part of that country pretty well. Not all of it, I and mean, a lot of it's mysterious stuff. But I just don't know the answer to that. Um, there are a lot of legal minds that have brought the case on one hand, and then there's smart legal people. Well, of course the president can do this. But you get into that question of, why would Congress pass a law to give the president a power if the next president could invalidate what the president, prior president said? I mean, you get into some interesting philosophical questions there. And outside of Olympus, the other boundary adjustments have been minor or Congress has repealed national monuments, which 
they have every legal right to do. They are Congress. They can repeal one. They can repeal the Antiquities Act. So that's what we're kind of left with, and we're all watching this with some interest, you know? It's only Utah that this has happened in. Now, some people think down in Nevada where Gold Butte near Bundy Land, will that happen in Nevada? Well, I don't know. Now there's a new senator that's a Democrat. And then some people, the Siskiyou Monument, you know, Southern Oregon, Northern California area, there's a bunch of agitation there, but nothing's been done. He did the two Utah ones, what? It's been almost a year and nothing else. And Secretary Zinke has all kinds of PR issues right now. And so you just don't know what the political context is anymore. And we'll just have to see what happens. I just don't know what's going to happen. You get a sense that Trump doesn't even know what that land looks like out there. You know, he came in and did his thing in Salt Lake City. You know, um, there are people opposed to the monument that I'll give them credit. They know that landscape. They've lived there their whole lives. I mean, the tri- it's, there are six tribes that think that stuff is sacred to them for various reasons. Um, and, of course, it's just spectacular. My problem is I wish Outside Magazine and Men's Journal would shut the F up about this stuff and stop publishing articles of the 10 things to do in Bears Ears. That's what wrecks this place. Right. I used to tell visitors, just go hike around out there. You may see something great one day, and the next day you might not. I used to hike into Antelope Canyon in the 70s. It's the famous slot canyon that's all those pictures are of. I didn't see a soul. Now you have to go on a tour, and I don't blame the Navajo for doing that. They make money and they control visitors. The Escalani drainages. I used to knock around in there. I'd see some occasional people. Now, thanks to tourism, it's a circus. You know, and I guess people ought to see it, but if there are 250 people in the same slot canyon you're in, who wants that experience? You know, it's those things aren't made for that. So I don't have an answer for that, except that doesn't help. That's right. all. It creates supporters, but it creates crap, too. Right. That's like that tricky boundary, it right? Is. Because, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, well, we need to make sure that we... Um, yeah. That, that this know. younger generation like appreciates this and so yeah it, it's yeah, like write a where piece, is yeah. write a piece on bears ears but make it general make it really exciting but then say you go there and right. find Maybe, stuff right go figure it out on you your own yeah. go visit not 10 things you should do yes yeah right. exactly right but yeah it's really interesting i think one silver lining in this whole thing is you mentioned that the six tribes that have mm-hmm. come together and historically those tribes have not been very friendly to one another. Oh, so, I know. And now we've got, you know, these six tribes have come together for this singular purpose. I know. And, and uniting them might be it helps. Uh, the silver lining in the in the story. Yeah, we'll just have to see, but uh, I can't tell you what's out there. That Anasazi stuff is everywhere. It's mm. everywhere. In uh, Grand Staircase, I mean, they're finding dinosaur stuff. When Clinton did that, they didn't know what was out there. I mean, it was mainly the Kaparowitz issue with the coal that started that. And there was enough stuff that was known. But we went on a science board field trip. There were like, look what we just found. Right. All that kind of stuff. (laughs) And then don't tell anybody where that is. (laughs) You know, somebody can hike and just go, wow. In fact, I think some hiker did find it or a rancher. Like, look what this is. Mm -hmm. But don't tell people where it is. There are too many morons out there, you know. (laughs) I'm an old ranger. The the stupid visitor questions, I mean, everybody has them. I wasn't at Mesa Verde, but I had a friend who was. Ask, why the Anasazi built so far from the railroad? (laughs) (laughs) 
these are voters. You know, I tell people, these are also called voters. It's like, well, but there was no railroad. There were no white people. It's like, you know, but then that, you take that a step further and they're throwing crap into the geysers. You know, or you're out there on a rescue because what the hell were you thinking? Kind of, you know. Or the, so, the family that put the baby buffalo in their minivan and drove it yeah. to the ranger station because it was cold and wet. I know. And it's just, you know, jaw-dropping. Oh, like, jaw-dropping. You thought that buffalo needed your help? Yeah, <laughs> no. I just... I know. I know. So, you want people to experience it, but you don't want them out there with the wrong set of perceptions or something's going to happen. Right. You got to educate people as you a do. part of that process. Yeah, for yeah, sure. You do. I think those, yeah. uh, and I should probably say bison and not buffalo, but I, I think that family uh, got some education and how not to recreate. <laughs> well, the worst was the guy who was out there harassing one and everybody had pictures of him on the road doing this. They busted his ass for that. Right. Or the guy walking right up to Old Faithful. What are you thinking exactly? Mm-hmm. We think this is you know Disneyland and that thing's controlled and it's going to, wait, there's a guy out there, turn it off. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I mean, you could get a, you could do public lands. I do it when I get on a roll. It's like stand-up comedy about the stupid crap that yeah. happens on public land, you know? Anyway, well, this was fun, guys. Yeah, that was yeah. a good way to wrap it up. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks That was our interview with John Freemuth, professor of public policy at Boise State University and the Andrus Endowed Chair of Environment and Public Lands. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Steve Olsip and Leah Dunn. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle.